Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Logan Mitchell, a PhD student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We'll be talking about Logan's segue from a career in musical theater to academic philosophy, their research on mindfulness as it relates to moral philosophy and moral psychology. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Logan, you can email them at lmitchell at unc.edu. Logan Mitchell, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to, to have been invited. So tell us, what did you get up to before you came to study academic philosophy? This is, it's crazy. So I used to be a full-time musical theater performer, actually. I started performing when I was like six years old. I went to boarding school. I spent my first years of high school to boarding school setting ballet and doing theater there. And I started working professionally as an actor when I was 17. And I thought, college is dumb. I'm never going to go to college. So I never even took the SATs. I never applied to college. And I moved to New York when I was 19. And I was actually uh, pretty successful as an actor. And I I basically did that full time for a few years. And I got cast in the international tour of the musical West Side Story in 2016. So I and that so we toured, I think we were like 14 different countries. And it was really, you know, it was like the the sort of peak of my career. And I, I was only in my early 20s and I had already sort of gotten this really major work and uh, we were performing in Vienna and Dublin and Tokyo and Dubai we went to New Zealand we went to Hong Kong I mean it was we went to um, Oman we went to Istanbul I mean it was crazy we went to (laughs) Zurich oh my god I'm just I'm just gonna spend the whole time listing all the amazing places we went but while I was there the 2016 election happened and I was playing a racist white person so i don't know if you know the musical but it's about racism and white supremacy and i was an american playing a racist in europe at right after trump got elected and it was very we were all just feeling very like uh, we knew how important doing the show was at this time mm-hmm. but i also started to feel like there's got to be more that i can do with my life than than just performing not to minimize how important the arts are but I just felt like I want to be able to do more. And I also was being exposed to cultures for the first time in my life that didn't. Can I, can I curse on the show? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I was being exposed to people, <laughs> to these cultures that didn't give a shit about musicals. Cause we mm. would go and it's like, you know, you go in a musical theater and been my whole identity for like a decade. And then I was like in, we were driving through villages in the swiss countryside and i just sort of thought like these people have probably never heard of musicals and they don't care and they have great lives and i just sort of got i started to get this more global perspective about the world and when i was on tour i decided i'm gonna go to college i didn't plan on majoring in philosophy until i actually until i took until i was at community college until two years into my degree and even then i was very i said i would never go to graduate school graduate school is dumb um, that's for chumps. And I was my plan was to move back to New York and go back to acting, but be able to get a day job that was 
with the nonprofit or be able to have a second career at some point. But I just absolutely fell in love with with ethics and philosophy. And this was all before the pandemic. And so I'm really glad that I decided to pursue this path when I did, because when I was applying in December 2020, like there really weren't any acting jobs available at the time anyways. So <laughs> it kind of worked out. Well, we're very glad to hear it worked out. And thank you for telling us that. I mean, that's an, quite an amazing life story. <laughs> so about this, uh, you know, process of deciding to do graduate study in philosophy. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how that went, because I gather you had some pretty extraordinary experiences when it came to the waitlist in particular. Oh my um, God. So yeah, tell me a bit about that. I was the queen. I was the queen of the waitlist <laughs> in my, my cohort. So because, so, you know, I applied in December of 2020, which was the year after that sort of really bad COVID year when, and, and actually someone in my, in the cohort above me at UNC he was one of the people that got an offer at Arizona and then had the offer rescinded. Oh, wow. And luckily he got off the wait list at Chapel Hill. I think it was on April 15th in the afternoon, like an hour before 5 p.m. or something. Like it was, yeah. And he's amazing and he's a genius. And it's like, I'm so glad that he is here at Chapel Hill. I'm so glad that, that he's where he is. But because of, you know, learning about all of that drama, I was like, okay, I'm going to go hard. I was like, I'm going to apply to so many schools. So I applied to 20, I think 21 or 20 PhD programs. Wow. And then I applied to like five master's programs. I actually got, I think I got into all the master's programs or I withdrew before they had announced because they have a little bit of a later cycle, mm. but I got waitlisted at one point at 11 schools. <laughs> And I was, it was so many schools. Oof. I only got outright accepted to one, which was Arizona State, which is where I did my undergraduate. And so it would have been really rude if they hadn't accepted me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was like, I, re- I was like, I don't really want to go to ASU because I went there for undergrad. You know, it's not really viewed as like the best thing for you as a philosopher to continue with the same people that you've been working with. And so I bought a whiteboard. I remember talking with one of my professors and I was like, how do I? choose because I was like, am I going to be in a position where I have to decide on April 15th and I, st- you know, what, where I'm going to go and I'm going to have no idea what the, what the options are. And so I got a whiteboard and I created a list. I, I had to think about the culture. I had to think about their, the placement rate. I had to think about the location because I care about, look, some people don't, I care a lot about location. <laughs> I had to think about things like the number of professors I could work with, you know, like who, like thinking of, there were some smaller departments that just had fewer people working on things that I was interested in that still had great placement. And then it was really, really quite complicated. But luckily I, I, so I had like a list and I had like, I had my whiteboard and I had like my top sort of four or five schools my number three choice had told me there was a very good chance that I would get off the wait list. They had said, you, there is a very high likelihood you are at the very top of the wait list. So that was good. So that, I mean, that gave me some ease, but there was, you know, it's, I still had to figure out like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, I still have to figure out these other things. But luckily, one of my very top choices was UNC Chapel Hill. And very luckily, I got off the wait list pretty early. Because I had heard, like I like my friend who's at UNC now, I had heard at the Perspectives Weekend that several people who got off the wait list in the previous year didn't get off until April 15th. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready for that. So I was I was prepared. I was like, okay, I've got I'm ready 
I'm in communication with all these different schools. But luckily, I would say a couple weeks before April 15th, I got off the wait list at UNC and I was able to reject all the other places. So I actually don't know if I would have gotten, they were the first school to to take me off the wait list formally. Other schools had been sort of like, it's looking really good for you. When I rejected a few schools, like one guy was like, oh, we were just about to make you an offer. I'm so sorry <laughs> that we couldn't make, you know, I mean, who knows if that's really true, but <laughs> it was such a liminal period in my life because I had graduated in December. So I didn't even have school to keep me busy because I graduated a semester early. So it was just like trying to meditate and practice mindfulness and sort of, and just sort of hang out until, I mean, and it was still pre-vaccine at the time of COVID. So it was, it was a very, very liminal is the word I used to describe. It was just so like uncertain and in between, but I knew that I would end up someplace good. I also got off the, I, I was accepted with pretty good funding to Simon Fraser, which is a, you know, a, a top master's program. And so I also had to decide, are there some of these PhD programs that I'd actually would reject and then instead go to Simon Fraser? You know, so there are all these different life mm-hmm. paths that I had to really think about. And I just got really lucky that I didn't ultimately have to make a quick decision with 20 minutes to spare. And because I got off the wait list pretty early, and then it was pretty, it was a pretty easy choice to make from there. Yeah, I mean, gosh, that sounds like quite the stressful time. I'm glad it worked out in the end. But you mentioned that one of those things that helped was meditation and mindfulness. And, and of course, this forms actually the um, the basis of your doctoral research now. So I'd like to learn more about what exactly it is you're researching when it comes to mindfulness. But first of all, I guess, what is mindfulness? Oh, it's a great question. So I've been teaching mindfulness since 2019, but I've been practicing mindfulness for over a decade at this point. So I, I'm a, I also identify as a Buddhist. So I practice in in this Buddhist tradition called the Plum Village tradition that that Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a he passed away last year, but he is a Vietnamese Zen monk who I would say right after the Dalai Lama, he's like one of he's like the second most famous monk in the world, right? And I'm not going to give, I, I'm not sure he really ever gives a clear definition of, of mindfulness. That's the thing about like Zen masters is they don't give you exactly what you want. <laughs> you know, they, they speak in, in like strange metaphors sometimes of like the wind and the trees goes around and around and you're like, okay, great. So, you know, analytic philosophers sometimes like a little bit more precision. So that's actually half of the work that I've been doing <laughs> so far has been to take some of these Buddhist texts and also to take work in neuroscience and psychology on mindfulness. Cause I do most of my research is trying to come at things from a secular lens without, or really just more of a metaphysically neutral lens. So not coming from a explicitly Buddhist lens when it comes to questions about the self or about suffering or things like that, because I really want mindfulness to be more popularized more mainstream i want it to be viewed as much more than either either a buddhist construct or a way to relieve stress so with that in mind the definition that i've been working with lately comes from these psychologists lindsay and cresswell are their last name i don't remember their first names but they have this theory called monitoring and acceptance theory which i found very helpful and basically they define mindfulness as involving these two main components, which is the monitoring of one's present moment experience or some facet of present moment experience. It can be as 
as zoomed in as the breath or as zoomed out as sort of this more ambient awareness type of thing. And you, you attend, you monitor with an attitude of acceptance. And my advisors have really forced me to precisify. I love that word. That's a fun word to precisify this idea because the psychologists are kind of like, ah, it's an umbrella term that refers to all these wonderful things. But I'm like, wow, it's really hard to do good philosophy when you just use umbrella terms that are kind of vague. So I, I define acceptance as an attitude that is really about allowing things to allowing phenomena to be as they are without further reactivity, without further proliferation. So without uh, actively analyzing something or without resisting it or clinging to it, bringing it towards you or pushing it away, allowing the thoughts and feelings, allowing a tree, allowing your friend, you know, listening to a friend and attending to your friend closely, allowing them to just be as they are without trying to change them. And so I would say that's uh and that that's maybe mindful mindfulness as a state and you can also talk about mindfulness as a trait what it is to be a mindful person. I've developed a sort of technical account of that in my research and you can also think about mindfulness as a practice. So you you pr- you formally practice mindfulness you formally try to cultivate these mental states in order to integrate the states more into your life or achieve some sort of benefit. So, so those are really three different ways you can talk about mindfulness, but they all, I like to think they all involve this monitoring and accepting sort of these two components, that those are sort of the necessary sufficient conditions. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, thank you for persistifying that. I love that word too. And it's, and it's interesting. You mentioned the kind of idea that, you know, mindfulness involves some, you know, you're trying to not analyze things around you. And like, it seems like in philosophy, that's like exactly what we're trying to do all the time. So it seems like they could pull in different ways, funnily enough. I guess I'm just wondering sort of related to that idea. Then we hear about mindfulness. I mean, I use headspace. Like I feel like mindfulness is a pretty popular Mm -hmm. idea these days. I'm curious like about like the sort of philosophical and and maybe even like the the moral significance of, of, of mindfulness, which I feel like is is your focus. Yeah, could you like uh, elaborate on that for me? Yes. So, really, one of my biggest aspirations in life is to like emphasize, re-emphasize the relationship between mindfulness and morality. You know, explicitly from a secular lens in this point. But so much of the secular stuff about mindfulness is, you know, mindfulness is a way of taking care of yourself. Mindfulness is a way of managing anxiety and depression, which is very valuable. And there, there's plenty of really good research on how mindfulness can help people manage chronic pain and, and anxiety and depression and as a form of a relapse prevention and addiction. All, all those things are great. But, you know, with in Buddhism, mindfulness is really thought to be the sort of primary virtue. That's a term that I think Lisa Davis is her name. She, she uses that term, which I really like, that mindfulness is thought to sort of be foundational to cultivating virtue because the thought is that your actions and your speech all begin with your attention and what you're paying attention to and gaining the ability and the capacity to know where your attention is, know where your thoughts are going and to redirect your attention towards that which you think is conducive to morality, conducive to your own liberation, whatever whatever insert your thing you want to insert here. But mindfulness is thought in Buddhism to be really essential to living a life of virtue and a life of flourishing. And I think a lot of the contemporary secular discourse on mindfulness maybe does talk about the flourishing bit, but they really 
have yet to really centralize the relationship with morality. So that's actually a lot of what my research is about. So like my master's thesis is about moral emotion, sort of defending the idea because some people also resist mindfulness because they think it means you're just calm all the time. Or so you might think that a mindful person may experience less guilt when they do something wrong, or a mindful person may experience less anger when injustice actually occurs. And maybe you think it's it's really fitting to be angry. And Buddhists give a very specific response to this, which is that, you know, the self's not real. Most of them are not what I call blame embracers. That's a term I like to use. Most Buddhists are not blame embracers. Most Buddhists say, you know, anger is actually pretty toxic. So yeah, you shouldn't be, uh, it's fine for mindfulness to help you uh, to just calm down your your emotions. That's better. But my my big argument is that that's not necessarily the only thing that mindfulness can do, that mindfulness is actually perfectly compatible with embracing the role of blame and the value of blame. So yeah, so, so I, I want to really bring together the I, these sort of more Western ideas about morality and mindfulness and show how, well, you might think that their intention, ultimately we can motivate this idea that mindfulness is a, being a mindful person is a morally good way to be. Even if you're not a Buddhist, you don't need these Buddhist metaphysics. Because I've had my, one of my advisors said early on, I think to motivate this premise that I call moral mindfulness, this premise that being mindful is a morally good way to be. She was like, I think you need the the metaphysics. I think you need the non-self, the interdependence, the impermanent. Like, I think you need that. And I was like, I don't. I don't think you need that. So that's really sort of, that's what my dissertation ultimately, I believe, will be will be about is defending this premise, but through a bunch of different ways, talking about the value, the sort of instrumental moral value, the intrinsic moral value, if there is any, talking about moral progress and ethical inquiry and things like that, and even responsibility. So I'm interested in really exploring the relationship that mindfulness can bring to bear on these more popular topics in Western analytic ethics that haven't really been talked about in Buddhist ethics. So to push back a little bit, I guess, on what you've just said there, particularly with regards to moral emotions such as blame. So you said that some people might think that blame and anger are emotions that we really shouldn't be having at all. So if mindfulness allows us to get to a state where we no longer experience these emotions, that's great. But you seem to be saying something a little different, which is that actually, you know, blame and anger in moderation, maybe there is some virtue in that. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more, I guess, about how you're arriving at that conclusion, but also how the mindfulness part plays in. How is it the mindfulness, I guess, doesn't just deflate these kinds of emotions altogether? How is it the mindfulness actually allows us to experience these emotions in the right kind of degree? Right. That's a great question. Something I talk about a lot in the paper is that mindfulness doesn't come with any sort of substantive set of values. Now, it may be that in the real world, a lot of people that value mindfulness are also drawn to Buddhist ideas and things like that. So I think there is this sort of idea that you get that mindfulness is sort of constitutively anti-blame or something, right? Because because a lot of Buddhist moral psychology is is often anti-blame. But I believe that if you are a mindful person, that actually doesn't tell you much about how someone will respond to a moral emotion, especially so... If you're a mindful moral emoter, which is a term I use a lot in my thesis, if you are a a mindful moral emoter and you're also someone who's like a Strassonian, so for people who are unfamiliar, Peter Strassen is this very famous philosopher who wrote this paper called Freedom and Resentment, and he has this argument that 
that blaming emotions like resentment and guilt, or at least some type of system of what he calls reactive attitudes are necessary for interpersonal relationships. And they're necessary to sort of enforce the norms constitutive of thriving interpersonal relationships. And I think if you're a Strassonian, you're a mindful person. Mindful, the way you experience guilt will be less intense and will be less sort of overwhelming than if you were not mindful because you will be disposed to attend to your guilt in an accepting manner, to notice the guilt without further judging it. But the way I actually define a mindful moral emotion is not one in which you're just constantly in a state of mindfulness, but it's one in which you flow in between these mindful and non-mindful states so that the non-mindful states being the rumination, the evaluation, because that's literally what a mindful, that, that's what a moral emotion is, right? Moral emotions without thinking about the past, without judging ourselves, without judging some situation as morally salient in some way, they're no longer moral emotions at all. And so the way I like to define the moral emotion, a mindful moral emotion, is that it's one that is still, by definition, that moral emotion. So if it's guilt, it still involves some kind of perception that I've harmed someone else to whom I'm responsible, for example. But all of those non-mindful states are preceded by, followed by, and impacted by these mindful states. And what I think the mindful states give us is a kind of appreciation and a kind of leaning into the discomfort of these um, emotions. I mean, of course, some moral emotions are positive and what like gratitude. So uh, I focus mostly on the blaming emotions because those are the ones I think are the most like morally tricky. They're the ones that people worry about. As you mentioned, deflating, one of the worries I actually address in the paper is this is this worry that that it, what if being mindful is risky, is, is a is a morally risky disposition because suppose you do believe that you should feel guilty sometimes and your guilt should motivate you to make amends. And if you're mindful, will won't that just eliminate the motivation altogether? And the reason why I think that that's not true at least for those who believe that guilt is is valuable, I think it's because you're disposed to lean into the unpleasantness and to accept the unpleasantness and also to exit that mindful state, if you're a Strassonian, say, to reflect on your guilt, because you, you might notice guilt arising and you're not, you haven't really reflected on whether it's actually fitting or valuable or not, because you may just decide, you know, I actually didn't do anything wrong. I feel this sort of guilt because it's just residual Catholic guilt or it's residual shame about X, Y, Z. And in those cases, mindfulness obviously helps, right? And those are sort of the paradigmatic cases of when mindfulness is good because it helps you notice these impulses or you might feel an angry impulse to, to yell at your child when you know that your child doesn't, is, there's no resentment warranted towards your child. And mindfulness is great in that sense because it can help you notice that and then go, oh, right, I'm really noticing this impulse to scream at my child, but I know I don't want to. And I know that I don't really value that. But when you do think it's fitting, I think that mindfulness still helps because you're aware at that point of the obligations that you owe to others. It's kind of complicated to explain really quickly. I use this term called affective appreciation. So affective meaning like relating to emotions, uh, affective with an A. And I think that mindful people are disposed to affectively appreciate their emotions. And suppose that I do reflect on my guilt and I say, you know what? I really fucked up. I really did something wrong. And I, this just happened to me 
over the weekend, I won't go into details, but this happened to me where I said something to someone and well, I said something and later someone came up to me and said, you know, that, that, that hurt my feelings. And I reflected on it and I went, you know, that really wasn't the most compassionate thing I could have said. And I felt guilty about it. And I did, I wasn't in a state of mindfulness the whole time. And I think that was good because I was spending time reflecting on the past, thinking about the future, investigating it, analyzing it. But the mindful states were always, I was flowing in and out of these mindful states. And I was really appreciating. I was spending time with the guilt. I was spending time with the pain. I was spending time leaning into this feeling of, wow, it really doesn't feel good to have wronged someone that you care about. And I think that that kind of spending time with that emotion actually gives access to a certain kind of insight and understanding and appreciation of the other person and of your moral duties that a non-mindful person who's just like, they're ruminating and they feel really bad and they're just like, I just need the guilt to go away. So I'm going to say, I'm sorry, as quickly as possible. But that kind of disposition, I think that the mindful person has access to this sort of special kind of appreciation that ultimately means if you believe the guilt is fitting, you're not really at risk of it getting deflated. Now for the people, another example I use in the paper is Martha Nussbaum, who she's a very famous philosopher and she who argues that that guilt and anger are, are probably never never really appropriate in a sort of loose sense. I won't go into all the details, but basically she says what you should do instead when you feel angry, when you feel guilty, instead you should you should engage in what she calls the transition. And she says instead you should transition your attention, stop thinking about the past, don't ruminate about the past, stop judging yourself. Just think about your friend. Think about what you can do to make their life better, which is sort of a lot of times what we want to happen with guilt and anger. Like we, we want guilt to lead us to reflect on our friends. She says, well, who cares about guilt? You don't have to feel bad. You don't have to feel bad. Just think, you know, try to cultivate compassion. This is very similar to, to the Buddhist story too, I think. Regret and remorse are sort of indeterminate mental formations in, in Buddhist psychology, which means they're sort of neither always good or always bad. So there's some value in, in remorse, but you're really not supposed to be spending a ton of time reflecting on the past. You're really supposed to think, okay, let me think about what my friend really needs. And if a mindful person believes that, I do think that that mindfulness will lead them to, will lead their moral emotions to be a little bit more deflated, if you will. But importantly, I think that it doesn't have to. So I think it really, I, I use this term evaluative profile that I really think the way mindfulness affects how you experience a moral emotion will depend on your evaluative profile. Because I think being mindful is com perfectly compatible with choosing to go protest and choosing to go scream and maybe even choosing to slap someone in the face. You know, I mean, there may be times when you really do decide like that was so egregious. What an egregious wrong. And what, how much harm has this person caused? And this person's not responding to these kind remarks. So I think I need to be bold right now, or I need to sit, you know, a UNC alum named Samuel Reese Dennis has this, this argument that uh, part of what makes anger so valuable is that it can be scary in that we, we're willing to become uncivil. We're willing to be threatening. And I actually think being mindful is perfectly compatible with that. If you judge those responses to be fitting or valuable, and a lot of people do. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about mindfulness. It's so mindfulness can help you calm down when you want to calm down. But if you don't want to calm down, mindfulness doesn't force you to. It's just that how often do we say something when we're angry that we don't really mean or we don't really wish we said? I think in most cases, 
we a lot of times we feel the impulses and we know we we shouldn't say the thing. We know we shouldn't slap the person in the face. And mindfulness does help to inhibit those impulses. But when you think it's right, you know, when you think it's good, when it's really about injustice or when you have the moment to reflect, I don't think mindfulness is going to deflate those emotions. I think some really great thoughts there and some really great examples as well as to how philosophy can, can play a central but also a very valuable role in our, in our personal lives. So thanks for that, Logan, and thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.